Hello and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. Every week I bring you the stories of inspiring women who have been affected by cancer in some way. We talk about anything and everything related to the cancer experience. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to be used as medical advice. Rather, it is meant to create a dialogue. Today, my guest is Samantha Harris. Samantha is an Emmy-winning TV host and journalist, an author, a certified personal trainer, nutrition advocate, and a promoter of healthy living. She was diagnosed at the age of 40 with stage 2 invasive breast cancer back in 2014. Her diagnosis led her to write an amazing book called Your Healthiest Healthy, Eight Easy Ways to Take Control, Help Prevent and Fight Cancer, and Live a Longer, Cleaner, Happier Life. In the book, she translates comprehensive and research-based knowledge into an easy-to-follow action plan for maximizing health, energy, and happiness. I am so excited to have her on the show today to share her personal journey. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you for joining me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are? Absolutely. So I'm Samantha Harris. I am a TV host. Uh, A lot of people know me from uh, eight seasons hosting Dancing with the Stars, uh, my many, many years on Entertainment Tonight, and pretty much every other entertainment news show there is. I've been on as a host or anchor, reporter, kind of a jack of all trades on all of that. Um, And then I also had the really great fortune of performing on Broadway, Uh, did a summer doing the show Chicago as the character of Roxy Hart. And I'm a mama of two. I live in LA, but I'm from Minnesota and I still have a lot of Minnesota girl in me and I'm a breast cancer survivor. Can you talk about what it was like to find out uh, you had breast cancer? Did you feel a lump? Did you just go for a mammogram? Great question. So I was approaching 40 and my grandmother was a breast cancer survivor postmenopausal. Um, so we later found out there was no connection to my my cancer diagnosis. Um, but because of that, and because my dad died of colon cancer when he was just 50, um, my, our daughters were three and six at the time that I was about to turn 40. And I thought, you know, I think you're supposed to get that mammogram thing when you're 40. So why don't I just get a jump on it now? I'm so fit and healthy. Just set a baseline so we know what to look for if there are any changes. And so it's exactly what I did. And the results came back clear, which is what I had expected because like I said, I was eating healthfully. I was exercising regularly. There was no other conclusion in my mind that it would come back differently. And so there we were, clear mammogram results. But then 11 days later, doctor, and I'm sure you've heard this story time and time again, um, I was changing after a workout and I felt a lump in my right breast. And I thought it was pretty strange. And I'm really in tune with my body. I think because I work out so regularly, it really helps me to know my body. And uh, I thought it was really weird. So I called my longtime OBGYN. And she saw me like the next day and did a quick clinical exam. And she's always been a non-alarmist. And I appreciated that about her. And she said, yeah, you know what? This is what 40 looks like. It's probably glandular. Lay off the caffeine. 
I'm like caffeine. I don't drink coffee. I just have dark chocolate raisins at night. Um, she's like, yeah, lay off those. I'm like, that's my one vice, chocolate raisins. Um, and, and sent me on my way. But then a month later, the lump was still there. And again, not thinking it was cancer, I, but I did think I should get a second opinion. Uh, I went to see my internist and he did the exact same thing. Felt it, said it was nothing, said bye-bye. And so really it was four months later, you know, I kind of came up for air after the holidays and it was still there. And I thought, you know, if this lump is truly nothing and I'm going to live with it for the rest of my life, let's be sure it's really nothing. And I think I need something more than just a, a quick little squeeze. And so that's when I finally got a recommendation for um, a breast cancer specialist, a, a surgical oncologist. And I figured this is what you need to, in retrospect, and I'm sure this is something that you that you talk about a lot. It's important to go to the doc type of doctor who does this every day. So for me, that meant I needed to go to a doctor who looks at breasts every day and knew what to look for for healthy and for not healthy breasts. And so that's what I did. And um, and I'm I feel like I'm dragging the story out as long as it possibly can be, but. Just to, to put the finishing touch on it, uh, the surgical oncologist did a, her fellow did a needle biopsy. Then the oncologist did a needle biopsy. Um, they had the uh, radiologist in their office look at my mammogram results, and they said we don't see any cancer, but you're not crazy. We see something. Let's do a needle biopsy. So they did that, and when the results came back a week later, she said, "I have good news and bad news. The good news is it's not cancer, but the bad news is I don't know what it is." So let's take it out. And so I had a lumpectomy and it was after that, uh, not even waking up from surgery with the, with the rough, you know, the, the quick and down and dirty pathology. I had a way to, I woke up from surgery saying it wasn't cancer. And then when a week later by myself told my husband not to bother coming to the follow-up appointment with me to find out it was not only ductal carcinoma in situ, but it was also invasive breast cancer. What goes through your mind at that point? Because you had a normal mammogram You've been feeling this lump. Everyone's told you it's nothing to worry about. And then you're, you're completely caught off guard. Completely blindsided. Absolutely. Um, in that moment with the oncologist, you know, really, she, you know, it was, you always sort of picture it like in the movies where you're sitting down across a desk and the oncologist is looking at you saying, well, you have cancer. This is what we need to do. It was more, uh, a presentation of, blank paper and her drawing diagrams and saying the word carcinoma a lot. So it was almost like I had to realize it more so than, you know, I think it was more her soft way of introducing what's happening, you know, what, what the results were and the diagnosis. So as I sat there and that realization sunk in that, Oh my God, I, seriously, I, I have cancer with that can't be, I have two young kids at home. I, I am healthy. I eat right. I exercise regularly. I'm, I'm, I'm fit. I don't understand. Why is, how is this? How could this be? And it was devastating in that, in that moment. And in, and in the following days, as I sort of grappled with the fact that I really was not able to wake up from this bad dream that was a breast cancer diagnosis. And yet once I took a breath, once I tried to flip my perspective because I knew that I couldn't feel anxious and riddled with anxiety for the long journey ahead because that felt really awful and that was against everything that I have ever been about, I made a conscious choice to change my perspective and really flip the, flip the dialogue. Say, all right, well, everything that comes next, let's 
Let's look at it with a positive attitude. Let's find the silver lining. And so that began, and I talk about this a lot in my book, which is called Your Healthiest Healthy. Um, I talk about and provide different scripted talk, positive self-talk. And so in this instance, that that conversation with myself (laughs) looked like this. Samantha, you have cancer. Okay. Well, what's good about it? Well, we caught it early. Great job. Keep going. What else, Samantha? What else was positive? Well, um, otherwise, I'm very fit and healthy, which is going to make the recovery um, after surgery faster. It'll lessen the complications during surgery, and it will also reduce my chance of recurrence. Awesome. That's the attitude. Keep it going. And so it's with sort of that mentality that I continued on my cancer journey and found that, that thankfully, there is so much great medical advice and, and treatment and information and support out there that what was very scary and crushing in those first days or even a couple of weeks became manageable, doable, and I was able to take control. I love the whole scripted talk piece because it really allows you to reframe the situation into something that you know, is, is more positive and kind of allows you to move forward rather than being kind of hindered in your path. Exactly. And I think, and it's something that you know, we talk to our kids about as well, just in everyday stuff, you know, it's, it's the, the positive self-talk is a great tool to be able to have. Um, and it's really a key element to resiliency, you know, which is obviously the key to sur- a survivor's mindset is ha- having that resilience. Absolutely, right. Allowing yourself to move forward. I think that's that's so positive. So what happened at that point? You're sitting there, they're throwing this carcinoma word out at you a couple of times. Where do you go from there? Well, so when I finally made it back down the freeway to my house, well, I didn't actually go to my house. I met my husband at a nearby park and crumbled into his arms. And we walked for a while. And I think being out in nature and kind of connecting to the earth and to, and that sounds like so woo-woo. And I didn't think of it at the time. Like looking back now, I realized that was a really intuitively great choice to not go right home and have to face the kids and deal with that while I'm still trying to grapple with the information, but to go somewhere outside of where I, you know, my, I make my home and, and be with the person who is going to be my biggest supporter and strength through the next God knows how much time. Um, and so we, we walked for about an hour and kind of talked through things. And, you know, it's so important to have that positive support system. And sometimes the people who you might think will be the best for you in that situation sometimes aren't, and that's okay. You have to sort of assess, well, is, is this, is this friend or is this relative giving me too much of her own opinion or too much advice or sending me too many articles that honestly are creating more anxiety within me. And then giving yourself the permission to say, you know what? Hey, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing, but I really can't have that right now. Um, so for me in that moment, connecting with my husband, who was a great, perfect person for me to be able to have with me on this journey was really important. And then on that you know, at the end of that hour long walk is when we made those phone calls to my mom and my sister and his family and kind of went through that together. How did your family react to this? I'm definitely shocked. Um, you know, I think about my poor mom who had to 
endure the the pain and anguish as the primary caregiver and emotional confidant for my dad when he was battling his two years with colon cancer before his death. Um, so for her to have to have her baby go through it, um, I, I think was really hard news to take. And she was really strong about it in my, you know, in my presence, but I can only imagine how that was for her. Um, and you know, my sister, my sister was great. She was positive. She was energetic. She flew out to be here during the hospital stay so that my husband and she could be here. My, then she passed the baton to my mom who then came and then to my mother-in-law who then came and then to a cousin. And it was just sort of an ongoing parade of people through our house who, who got me through uh, a really intense recovery after my mastectomy. Was the mastectomy recommended or is that a choice that you made for yourself? It is a choice that I made for myself. It was, uh, you know, I was, I saw three surgical oncologists within three days of being diagnosed. Uh, I wanted multiple opinions. I also had a second opinion for the pathology because I knew that everyone was making their recommendations based on the initial pathology um, conclusions. And so uh, another doctor friend said, you know, just, it wouldn't be bad to have a second pathologist, uh, you know, look at it. So I sent my, I actually went to the hospital, picked up, you know, to the lab, picked up my tissue samples, drove it to another hospital, dropped it off at their lab. And it was, it was conclusive. Um, but at least I knew then I was, you know, I was taking control of it and I was, uh, I made sure that everyone was on the same playing field with the same information. Um, but the recommendations were different. The two, interestingly, the two female surgical oncologists recommended the double mastectomy um, with reconstruction, and the um, male surgical oncologist, who ultimately is the one I chose to do my surgery, ended up, uh, he's very much a breast conservationist. Um, I appreciate that very much about him, and not just jumping to just chop them off, let's be done with it. Um, you know, he said, look, you have a small, you know, small tumor. It's slow. It was slow growing. The chances that it spread are, are really low, although it did end up going to a lymph node, which shook, which really shocked him. Um, uh, and, you know, let's do, an, a, I'd already had a lumpectomy that diagnosed it. So I needed another lumpectomy because obviously the borders weren't, uh, margins weren't clear. Uh, but he recommended, you know, another, another lumpectomy with followed by six weeks of radiation. And, uh, you know, and I really went back and forth a lot. I and mean, my husband and I made pro and con lists. We were going just back and forth. But I think what really helped me was speaking to other survivors and hearing the story of the, their choice and why they came to that choice. Uh, you know, whether it was a radiation, a radiation and lumpectomy combo or a, a you know a single mastectomy or a double mastectomy and he, and hearing all three versions of what they felt and so for me it, it was that verdict of a double mastectomy I didn't I, for multiple reasons and I'm happy to go in them to them if you want or we can move on to other topics because I know there's lots to discuss it's up to you what made you ultimately decide because your decision is what a lot of people struggle with. So we know that in terms of efficacy, you know, lumpectomy with radiation is equivalent to a mastectomy, but it's such a personal decision. What were the factors that ultimately made you decide on the mastectomy? Um, well, it's interesting. And actually, I was literally just on the phone yesterday for a while with one of my good friends who had been recently diagnosed and was going through this exact struggle of trying to figure that out and also trying to figure out whether or not she wants to have reconstruction either way because she's you know, so concerned about 
um, you know, if there's a recurrence and what happens and if she has, you know, so it's, I, I the struggle is real. <laughs> the struggle is real. Um, so for me, couple of things. Um, if I chose the lumpectomy with radiation, that meant that I would, if God forbid the cancer came back, I would not be able to radiate the same area again. And I liked the idea of being able to preserve the option of radiation in the future if and when God forbid that happened. I also knew that another lumpectomy would leave me slightly disfigured. I already was, uh, you know, slightly, I mean, disfigured is, I think, a very harsh comment uh, or or way to to phrase it. But um, because with the lumpectomy, I wasn't going to have um, implants. And so therefore I was, I was losing the symmetry and it really, I really did not just, I want to make clear, I did not base the total decision on the surface superficial cosmetic, you know, decision. Um, but as a woman, we, you know, it would be dishonest or disingenuous to say, we don't think about those things. I thought, you know, already from the lump, initial lumpectomy, that breast is, is slightly askew and crumbled up and looks really funky. And another lumpectomy is going to distort it even further. And I think distortions may be a better word than, than the other word I was choosing. Um, and so I would have a, an unevenness, um, uh, but really it was the radiation element of that, that was a, a big negative on my, our pro and cons. The pros for it, however, to do the radiation with the lumpectomy was that my recovery was going to be a lot faster from the lumpectomy. Um, I, so, you know, my kids were three and six, they were running around. They just wanted mommy to be able to pick them up and I needed to be, you know, wanted to get back to work and be on, on my way and just have this behind me. So that was very appealing. Uh, when I spoke to some other survivors, uh, who, and one woman in particular whose story was this, she'd had a lumpectomy with radiation. Um, they didn't get clear margins. She had to go back in for another lumpectomy. They didn't have clear margins. She went in a third time and then finally decided to have a mastectomy. And I thought, I don't want to go through that. And then, and I'm sure you have thoughts on on that as well. You know, I think that it's tough, right? So there's always the what if. And I think it's a matter of, do you live in the moment and deal with the information that's in front of you? Or do you think ahead? And women are always, as women, we always want to think ahead. Well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And I think it's a decision that everyone has to make individually based on who they are, right? Some people are much more, I'm going to deal with what I have. And if it happens later, I'll deal with it then. And other women are much more planners and like to consider kind of all possible scenarios. Right, right. And I'm, I'm definitely a planner. As, as I'm sure you've been able to figure out so far. Um, and, and, and also, um, you know, part of that sort of taking control, um, in a situation where with a diagnosis, you feel like you don't have control. So that was sort of the information and sort of the, my thought process with the lumpectomy with radiation. I was very fearful of doing the mastectomy. I, I uh, let's, let's just talk for a moment. Let's be really real. And let's talk about the fact that sexually, you don't get to have that sensory enjoyment anymore. I was a boob girl. Like I really liked that element of the intimacy with my husband and the idea that I would lose all sensation in my breasts and in my nipples was sort of a devastating concept. And, um, so I grappled with that a lot. And the flip side, I thought, well, if, 
I don't want to be looking over my shoulder all the time. And I'm going to probably be anyway to some degree. But if I have a double mastectomy and I know that all the tissue is virtually gone, then maybe I'll feel a little bit more more of a sense of calm. Also, um, I talked to uh, you know one friend who'd had a single, a unilateral mastectomy, and, the, uh, and then many others who'd had doubles. The one who had the single it was interesting. She had had um, breast augmentation prior to her diagnosis, and so her thought process was, "I really like my boobs that I paid for. I don't want to ruin both of them, so let's just reconstruct one." And interestingly, you know, post-surgery and recovery and being down the road, you know, she said, God, I really wish I had gone for the double because of the ability to attain more symmetry um, because the, you know, the reconstructed post-cancer breast looks nothing like the pre-cancer or cancer-free breast augmentation breast. Um, and so I thought that was very interesting. And then the pivotal thing for me was that I knew two or maybe even three women, definitely two, who decided to have a double, went in and found cancer on the non-cancer side during their mastectomy. And when I woke up from recovery, I think it was day three, and one of the fellows was standing over my hospital bed and he said, you know, all the pathologies come back and just so you know, there was no cancer in the other breast. And there was such an incredible sense of relief. So um, obviously, I wouldn't have known that until that happened. But but it was that idea that also propelled me to do a, a, a bilateral instead of a unilateral. Um, so for symmetry purposes and for knowing that there was no cancer or if there was cancer that we got it. So what happened in terms of after the mastectomy? How was your recovery and how did it affect your body image? When you look at yourself all bandaged up, uh, the you know the expanders were in, but pretty flat. She she gave me a little bit of a little bit of juice in there so that I wasn't com- completely flat um, yet. Uh, you know when I woke up and and finally got home and you know took the breath and, and looked at my bandaged, bloodied, bruised self. It's disconcerting. Um, nipples were so bl- just bloody. I mean just. <laughs> They were, you know, they were not pretty. And, and you realize the trauma that's been done to you. I mean, you feel the trauma, but seeing it sort of solidifies that. I, I wondered, like, will they ever, you know, thankfully, I, I feel very lucky. We were able to save my nipples. Um, you know, they don't have sensation, but at least they're mine. And they're quite perky. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, you know, it's funny. I'm at the I'm at the gym working out, and I I always have sports bras or or on that you know don't really have padding in it for the most part because it always they always cut like shift window to a weird place. So I just took all the padding out, and so then of course I have very bright headlights just shine through. And I thought, you know what? I'm so happy to have my nipples. Go ahead, holler from the rooftop. Here they are, uh, because I'm, you know, I feel very lucky um, to to have been able to save them. I have friends who didn't have that opportunity or had uh, tried and then lost lost them to necrosis in the process. Um, so, uh, so, but but I wondered at the time in those you know weeks as I was recovering from the mastectomy, would you know would my nipples ever look the same? Would they survive? That's what I was most fearful. I really thought I was going to lose one of them. It started to look so black, and um, thankfully it it rallied. Go oh, you nipple. Um, <laughs> so that was good. You know, and then again, you have, you have drains hanging off of you. I think the drains, it was like almost like the drains and the expanders were more painful and 
uncomfortable um, and problematic than the mastectomy itself almost. You know, the drains are just so uncomfortable. My my three-year-old was fascinated by them. Say, mommy, mommy, let me see. And then I show it to her and she goes, ew. You know? <laughs> and she was so sweet about it and we even wanted to help me empty my drains. Um, and then, um, you know, when it came to the expanders, I, you know, sometimes there were just, there were certain days where they just, they just felt bone crushing. Um, but I would try to breathe through it. And, um, you know, my, I, my plastic surgeon is very conservative on recovery. So both for my initial, um, uh, reconstruction stage one and for my stage two, her recommendation, and I know this is different based on your plastic surgeon, um, but her, her not even recommendation, her insistence is that I remain basically in bed or in a lying down position all day, getting up for only 20 minute increments every two hours. And I wanted, and, and I think in week two or maybe in week three, I was allowed to go down a flight of stairs. But if I went down, I had to stay down for the rest of the day so that I didn't keep going up and down the stairs. And that was more about the cardio and the blood and taking blood away from what was recovering. And, and, um, and I also couldn't move my arms above my head, I think for six weeks. Yeah, six weeks. So that was interesting washing my hair. My husband washed it a lot for the beginning. That was for sure. Before we kind of talk about what happens after cancer, I'm curious. So your kids, you said, were three and six. How did you break the news to them or did you tell them at all? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually in my book, I also talk about how to have the conversation about any health diagnosis with your children, but based on their ages. So it's kind of a section that's broken down by the ages because it's really important uh, to be able to deliver the information in a way that is age appropriate. Um, so I talked to a couple of friends who are, were therapists and got some advice from them. And we told them separately. Well, actually, we told our six-year-old by herself and then she just happened to be in the room when we told the three-year-old in a slightly different way. So with the, uh, with the six-year-old, we did it while the three-year-old was napping. We, <laughs> she was watching her shows and, uh, because we were very strict on screen time. So she got her like, you know, her weekend hour in or whatever it was. And we, we paused the show. She was more, more annoyed and, and sort of, uh, taken aback by the fact that we had to pause her show. So even though we were talking about something really serious. She just every so often would glance back at the paused show on the TV um, screen. So with, with her being six, we explained that there are, that mommy was going to need some surgery. And there are two reasons that you need surgery. One is that there's something that with your body that's not working the way it should. And so the doctors go in to fix it so that, that it can start to work like our, like your grandma who just had back surgery. It wasn't working the way she needed. You saw how she was in bed when we went to visit her for Thanksgiving and now she's fine and she's up and about and you know, she's just fine. The other reason is that sometimes there are things inside your body that shouldn't be there. So the doctors and the surgeons have to go in and take it out. And that's what ha mommy has to do. And so I'm going to have some surgery. It's called breast cancer. I wanted to make sure to give her the words. We didn't give the words, the, the actual term to our three-year-old because I didn't want a kid on the playground to have heard it from their parents that Samantha has breast cancer and then say something to her. And she'd be like, what? She does what? No, no. So that was important. And we said, you know, mommy's going to. And so then it was important to tell her, you know, 
Mommy's going to be in bed for a little while. We're going to find some fun ways to make that a really special time for you as well. Um, we'll find some fun activities to do in bed with, you know, with mommy and you can bring your homework in after school. I mean, she was sick, so the homework wasn't that intense. It was like coloring, but you, know, you, you can bring it up with a snack and sit on the floor, you know, on a mat because you know, we food is usually confined to the kitchen space. So this was a very exciting moment that she could bring food into the bedroom and but making it, trying to make it fun and light um, and you know, and daddy's going to be there to pick you up at school and take you and guess what, Aunt, you know, auntie's coming in town and you get, you know, so making sure she had the information, but not being scared. Um, and then with a three-year-old, we kind of said uh, sort of similar in that mommy's going to have surgery. I have an, I have something, I did not call it an owie or a boo-boo because, uh, you, you know, we actually may have said breast cancer to her, but I think it, you know, so over her head, but mommy's going to be in bed and I'm not going to be able to pick you up for a while. And that was what she was most concerned with. Like, when can mommy pick me up again? Um, but we would do, you know, we'd do story time in bed with me. And, and then once I was able to get out of bed and read to her in the chair next to her crib, um, she, you know, she was, three. So she could, she was a good climber. So I, even though I couldn't pick her up with my arms, we figured out a fun way that she'd stand up on the chair. I'd stand up and turn around and she'd climb up onto my back. I would sort of walk a couple steps over to the crib, turn my back to the crib so she could then crawl down off my back into the crib. And that was sort of a fun thing. So again, trying to bring it into them in a way that is not scary um, you know, and for older kids, you know, in my book, I break it down in a different way and how to have those conversations and what, you know, especially for older kids who might run to the internet and want to start to Google, you know, breast cancer. That's the worst thing anyone can do, including a newly diagnosed patient. So talking through them and what, what, you know, here are some of the websites that are good to go to go to Komen.org or cancer.org so that Susan G. Komen and American Cancer Society can give you, you know, can give you really reliable information that's not going to be scary and that's going to be in, informative. Um, and every cancer is so different. So you can't read something and then think that's what's happening with mom. I love those ways. I think that's such a great way to talk to your children. Let's pivot a little bit about, and I want to talk about the changes that you made. And it sounds like, I mean, you were really healthy and everything beforehand, but I want to talk about the changes that you made to your lifestyle after the diagnosis. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's, that's where life has really taken a positive turn. No one wants a, a diagnosis of any disease, but I find that especially because we caught it early and I stage two B and I didn't end up having to go through, well, I chose not to do cancer. I mean, cancer. I chose not to do cancer. That'd be nice. Um, I chose not to do chemo, um, and, or radiation. And if we want to discuss that, we can, but, um, but I didn't have a high likelihood of needing it. It was just that I did have recommendations to have it, but it wasn't a, you need it. It was a, you're in a gray area for chemo. So, you know, here are the percentage points in your favor. If you decide to go for it, uh, that it will reduce your chance of recurrence. And what do you want to do with that? And I basically opted to not, um, and with radiation, I had two different radiation oncologists, one who said I needed it because I would have a 20% chance of local recurrence. If I didn't, the other said, actually you don't need it. And this is why. And she had studies that were more recent that had just come out that took tumor size into consideration that then negated the other person's recommendation. So that's why I didn't. Um, so the gift of cancer is because I reassessed 
really a lot of my life. Um, you know, I, I guess my dad died of colon cancer. Yes, his mother was a breast cancer survivor for more than 30 years and lived to 95. And yet in the extensive genetic testing that I had done far beyond the BRCA gene mutations, there was no genetic link determined for my cancer. Um, and, and I'm sure as you tell your patients, it's really only five to 10% of breast cancers that are genetic, right? It baffled me because I just, I sort of wanted, I, not that I wanted to be BRCA positive, but I wanted that, I wanted that answer to say, oh, phew, okay, well, I am doing everything right, but that's why I have it. That gives you kind of a reason as to why you got it. You know, exactly. you could say, I've, I've exactly. done everything right in my life and yet this still happened. Right, Exactly. Um, and so that's really what, what ended up sending me, you know, the journalists in me, that's my background. That's my training wanted to, I was craving answers and I'm very inquisitive. Um, sometimes annoyingly so to my husband. Um, and so I really delved deep into research. I read every book I could get my hands on. I spoke to as many experts as I could, um, every article in magazine on a website and I determined something that isn't so earth shattering because more and more people thankfully are learning about this, but it's really what you put in on and around your body that can affect your overall well-being in a positive or in a aggressively negative way. And so I started to change how I ate, what kind of beauty products I used, how I was cleaning my house, what sort of relationships were in my life and what were, which, which were detracting, which were toxic relationships and how did I um, reinforce resiliency and positivity. And I discovered my healthiest healthy. And I, I searched for one book that was comprehensive that could just give me kind of all the answers in one place and, um, or as many answers as possible. And it didn't seem to exist. And I thought, you know what, I've spent so much time going through this process. I really want to share it with other survivors and those who just don't want to have to go down this road at all, who might be able to make those changes in a proactive way. So maybe they will never have a diagnosis. And that's why I wrote the book, Your Healthiest Healthy. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I've had such great feedback from, from so many people. Um, and it's, it's exciting. And now actually, recently launched the Your Healthiest Healthy retreats, which are just a, a couple times a year at a high-end resort with a small intimate group of women where we sweat it out working out together, we dine together, and then each day is a different uh, topic for group coaching, um, all kind of taken from my Your Healthiest Healthy book. And so uh, I'm really, really excited about about that. And I, I talk a lot about it on my Instagram. So anyone who wants more information, they can just go to Samantha Harris TV and, and find out more, send me a message. Can you talk about, okay, so beauty products, makeup, cleaning supplies, toxic chemicals. You got it. Well, for a girl who spent her career and or is continuing to spend her career in a makeup chair, uh, getting ready for a TV show. I have been sprayed, hosed down, shellacked and, uh, painted more than, you know, the average gal. And I never thought for a second, what was even in my own beauty bag at home, let alone the products that were being sprayed on me and painted at, at the you know, TV shows. And so 
it was really eye-opening. The gateway for me actually wasn't makeup. The gateway to changing my personal care products in my routine was deodorant. And I'm sure you get a lot of these questions from survivors saying, gosh, is the aluminum in my deodorant causing my breast cancer? Um, before I say what I've come to find, what is your opinion and what do you say to your patients? So this is a little bit of a loaded topic, a uh, loaded know. question and I know, rather. Sorry, I that up. And I know that really the medical world is sort of still out on that as they're still doing more studies and trying to figure that out. But what do you tell your patients who ask you that? I, I try to feel out the patients. So some people, you know, I say to them, there's not a lot of data for this, but if that's something that you're interested in here are some good, you know, options for you. I don't make it a part of an absolute clear recommendation because there is no good data for it. And so, you know, I, I think some people want to do everything. They want to do everything, even if there's a slight chance it's going to help. And then other people are, are kind of on the less is more. So I think it's a really a conversation. My big focus really is for survivors is diet and what you're putting in your body and exercise. So I tend to focus more on that. Right. That, and that's, that is the, a very big change. And that's, I think, one of the best things you can do for yourself that I talk about in the book as well and, and that I've implemented in my own life. But interestingly for me, when I was diagnosed, a lot of survivors asked me, have you changed your deodorant yet? And I had no idea what they were talking. I'm like, what, why? Like, no idea. I'm, I'm a girl who, I mean, I do not glow when I work out at the gym. I am in a drenched sweat. I look like I just walked out of a shower. I'm not a, I'm not one of those pretty gym rats. I wish I were. I, I look like a rat. Um, <laughs> so, and, and, and I have those pits that are like faucets that you just, I sweat. I just sweat a lot. And, um, and I don't want to stink. So I, th so I used to use this like chemical bomb of deodorant that would stop the sweat. And interestingly, when I was on this, um, 23 city tour musical tour way back in my twenties, and I had to wear a skin tight bodysuit, I did not want the sweat to drip through and have these big sweat rings under my arms. So I got a prescriptive strength deodorant and I tell you, I was bone dry while the other girls were dripping. However, my armpits were red and swollen and so inflamed and uncomfortable that it didn't even dawn on me, what's in this? What is it doing to my, I was in my twenties. What did I know? Right. It's all about looks. God forbid I, you know, actually think about health. So, um, so it was very interesting when these women said to me, have you changed your deodorant? So that was eye-opening to me because it was the gateway in a great way to the world of better health in, in the products that I was using. And I started to read labels and I started to go on the environmental working group website, which is a great resource, um, or the think dirty app, which, uh, also shows you sort of a rating, uh, and chemical breakdown of the chemicals and the ingredients in different products. Um, and so Yes, I am still using aluminum-free deodorant. That'll stay as a staple. I do sweat, but I don't stink now at least, so that's good. <laughs> my my daughters, they're, um, the eight-year-old doesn't need deodorant. She just likes to use it because the older one is starting to use it, who's 11. Um, and, but I'm so happy that I'm able to give them something I feel safe with. And that goes along with them starting to enter, well, my 11-year-old starting to enter puberty. And 
we're, when we think about, and I know, I'm sorry, I know I'm getting off topic of the beauty products. I promise I will go back that way. Uh, but when we think about our feminine care routine, you know, having a monthly cycle, how many tampons and pads we are using over the course of our lifetime and the skin uh, that is in that delicate area and inside that delicate area, um, the membranes are so thin and it, it can get into our bloodstream so much easier than say, you know, lotion on your, on your arms. And so when you think about, and you really look into the chemicals that they use to make those things so beautifully white or to, um, to, uh, make it, um, absorbent so that it can last a long time. There is some crap you do not want up your hoo-ha, I'm just saying. So I've switched over to 100% organic cotton for all of my feminine care products. And again, my daughter entering puberty, already you know, giving her pads, and I'm saying, thank goodness I have 100% organic cotton. And I have even started to go down the, the wonderful world of menstrual cups and you know, an added protection that's medical grade silicone that's reusable you can keep it in tw- for 12 hours it's it can get a little bit messy but you know you just you, you work through that i don't recommend it for women who've not had kids so so that's that's on that side but um but back to the the makeup and the hair products it's a very sensitive subject with so many people right i mean our 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 makeup's really personal it is and you know people are used to using what they're used to and we don't know exactly what you should be doing but I'd love to hear your take on it or you know just kind of like like the organic cotton you know any kind of overarching changes that you've made um so um I have made well so what I recommend too is you know being that our skin is our largest organ I recommend that small steps in general no one's going to want to toss their entire makeup bag and their, you know, cabinet of products. We all have 4,000 products we bought, tried, and they're still somehow in the cabinet, but we haven't touched them in three years. Um, but no one wants to throw it all out because it costs, it does, it costs money. And we, so to be overwhelmed that you have to just change overnight is not the approach to take. You know, my book is all about small, manageable steps easy steps that you can take, whether it's changing what kinds of foods you're eating to the products you're using on your face, because if you want it to have a lasting effect, it needs to be a small change at, at a time. So start with your skin, change up your lotions and your, uh, your body lotions and your face lotions, as well as your foundation. And thankfully there are a lot of really great brands that are free from, you know, we all are, I think more and more familiar now with parabens, but the marketing gurus at these companies as well as in the food industry, they're very smart and they really think we're really dumb and they take advantage of us as consumers. Don't you find you walk down the aisle at the store and it, you know, if you're at the grocery store, everything's like gluten-free organic. And you walk down the aisle at, at, uh, you know, the, the drug store and it's paraben free. And you think, Oh, great. It, this is say this is safe for me. This is a healthier choice. You're overwhelmed. There's a bajillion products, and they all claim to be the healthiest thing for you. Exactly. 
And that's where you, and I, I have to stand, I don't want to get on my soapbox. You, know, you need to, but I'm going to get on it for a second and say, you need to. Um, it's so important to be a conscious consumer and an empowered consumer. And to do that, we have to educate ourselves. And I think sometimes our lives, we all are so busy, right? We're all juggling you know, work, family, commitments, overscheduling ourselves. So the last thing you feel like you want to do when you're trying to run in quickly to the drugstore to pick up some more moisturizer is stand in the aisle looking at the ingredients label, reading words that don't look anything like English, trying to decipher if it's safe or not for your body. Thankfully, there are a lot of really great resources that do all that work for you um, to help you with that. But I also, and those are, I list all, a lot of them in the book, um, Environmental Working Group, which is ewg.org. Um, there are a couple of stores that some have are brick and mortar, but they most are only in a few locations. So really it's online, um, but uh, really great resources for makeup and skincare would be Folane, which is F-O-L-L-A-I-N, Folane, um, Detox Market, and Credo Beauty. You don't even have to worry about doing the research yourself. They've done it for you. They have really high standards that are very strict for clean beauty. Um, so, but I find I still will be at a store and I want to know what I'm looking at. So I familiarized myself. I, in the book, I actually have a chart of a lot of the things. I call it the keep off your bod list. And they're just beyond par. And my parabens are on there, but it's beyond parabens, beyond parabens. You know, there are things called phthalates. And unfortunately, they don't say phthalates on the label um, because they have a lot of other names for what that is. Uh, there's something called 1,4-dioxin that is in and itself some, not necessarily, it's an endocrine disruptor, but oftentimes it's also paired with things that are even more harmful to your, to your body and your beauty and your health. Um, so being able to find brands that you can trust so that you don't have to do the work every time it's possible, but you have to allow yourself to open up to the information. Are there any kind of grocery store pharmacy brands that if someone says, oh, I'm out of mascara, I want to run in, what would be, and I can't get it online, what's kind of a safe option for people? And it's funny you chose to, um, the example of mascara because as I said, it's all about small manageable steps. And I have a very much like a 90-10 rule with my food as well as my products. So I still go with like the big brand L'Oreal Maybelline CoverGirl mascaras. Um, I've, but I'm searching. I'm still searching. If anyone listening has a fantastic clean beauty mascara that works, because I've tried a lot, but see, I have those really straight lashes that point down. So if I curl them and then I use a regular mascara, a mineral based, or even just a regular non-waterproof major brand mascara, my lashes will wilt in three seconds flat. So I have to use waterproof and I haven't been able to find a clean version. However, um, beauty counter is more and more available at some bigger stores. I know they did, a, I think a capsule collection with target. Um, there are some, there are actually a there are a good amount, you know, obviously for those of you who have a Whole Foods in your area um, or a Sprouts market, you know, those places definitely have a lot more options uh, for, you know, Mineral Fusion is a brand that's sold at Whole Foods that is a very clean line that I, I use a lot of their stuff. Um, uh, there's a brand that I love called Ilia, I-L-I-A, um, 
uh, you already said beauty counter, Elia, hint beauty. There's, there are a lot, um, but it, unfortunately we have to be so proactive in thinking ahead because a lot of the major stores, you know, the, the CVS and Walgreens and all of those of the world for, for running in for quick makeup purchases still don't have a lot of clean beauty. They're getting better about having some clean shampoo options, maybe some clean sunscreen options. Um, but you know, you want, they, you want to get rid of the aerosol cans because they have propellant, which is really toxic, uh, as well as other just nasty ingredients that you just don't want in your presence. Um, uh, but, you know, every time I go to use my pump hairspray, I will say sometimes the pump fails. But then sometimes the spray would have failed anyway. So, like the, the aerosol spray. So, it's hit or miss. But there are a lot of great options. And people can follow me on Instagram or DM me or post a question there. I'll try to get back to them. Um, obviously, the, my, the book has a lot, a whole list of options from clean nail polishes to shampoo to beauty, uh, makeup, and things like that as well. So everyone needs to go buy your book and get all that information there. Um, we're running out of time, but I want to spend the last few minutes talking about diet. And I think people want to know what your thoughts are on that and then what your typical day of eating looks like. The biggest change that I have made and that I find has been incredibly impactful has been switching more to a whole foods plant-based diet and filling up my plate at every meal at least half full with veggies. Um, so what that looks like for me is my morning smoothie is full of uh, greens powder, organic greens powder. Actually, everything's organic, so I'll just start with there. Everything's organic. Um, so if you're produce, you really want to try to go, or go organic when you can. Um, and if it's a cost issue, then the EWG website has a list of the dirty dozen and the clean 15. So dirty dozen, exactly what it sounds like. The 12 most pesticide heavy produce items and the clean 15 are the least pesticide heavy. So if you're f f trying to figure out where to spend your money, that's a great guide for that. But, um, but lettuce and berries are, are high in pesticides. So they're always organic when, when I can throw them in. Um, so I use spinach and kale and a greens powder um, so that way I'm getting my greens. I have a plant-based protein in my smoothie. I also like to throw a lot of things into it that I maybe wouldn't necessarily want to consume on their own, um, that once everything's blended together, cause I have organic wild blueberries and strawberries in there. Uh, so not the blueberries are wild, not the strawberries, both are organic, uh, frozen. I, I love Costco. Well, they don't have Costco's awesome because they have a lot of organic now more and more. And, and you can really get great bang for your buck when you're buying frozen fruit. Um, and they have big bags of frozen organic. So that's where I, you know, we, we have a, a freezer <laughs> full of organic frozen fruit. Um, so, uh, but I put, I put a lot of other things into my smoothie that aren't necessarily things that I want to consume on my own, but things that have great micronutrients and antioxidant properties and fiber and omega-3s. So that looks like, you know, flaxseed and chia seeds, um, matcha green tea powder, especially for breast health, matcha green tea powder is so potent, right? There's, um, you know, there's a lot of studies about green tea from the Japanese and Christy Funk is a breast surgeon who's written a book. And actually, I don't know if you are familiar with her book, but oh, in yeah. her yeah, book, no, I mean, Christy personally, yeah. 
Yeah, she really talks about, you know, I think she recommends something like four cups of green tea per day. Right. And for those who aren't familiar with matcha, when you have when you have a cup of green tea and you get a tea bag and you steep it, what you're steeping are the are the green tea leaves. And then the what's left for you to drink and consume are just what what the water is absorbing from those leaves. Matcha is actually the the green tea leaf itself ground into such a fine powder. And then you mix that powder into your hot water, or in this case, I put it in my smoothie. And so you're actually, that's why matcha is such a great green tea um, to go with because the benefits for antioxidants are that much more intensified. So that's what that's all about. And so with that, you almost only need a a teaspoon a day um, is enough to have very beneficial properties. Um, so, and then I also throw some bee pollen in cause that has some other lovely things that you guys can look up online. They'd be like, Ooh, that's cool. I'm doing that too. Um, and that's, and then ginger, ginger is really wonderful. It's one of those, you know, turmeric and ginger and all these other wonderful, uh, root vegetables that have great healthifying properties. So, um, I add that as well. And, and I'm, I'm sure some of the questions are, well, how does it taste? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I crave it when I don't have it. We went on vacation re- recently for a week and we brought our blender. You need a high powered blender like a Vitamix or Ninja um, because you want to be able to truly just blend it to liquefy it all. Um, but we we knew that the place we'd be staying, the kitchen only had a really sad pathetic excuse for a blender. So we carried it on and it was awesome because we had our fresh smoothies every day. Um, but, but you can start, you can start much easier and just add a little bit of spinach in cause that's really mild and then increase your green factor there. And then salad for lunch, lots of chopped salad with great colorful, uh, vegetables and, uh, some avocado for healthy fats lentils. So I have, uh, you know, plant-based protein and dinner looks anything like the occasional wild Alaskan salmon. Um, I, even though I minimize my animal protein intake, there's some great benefits from wild Alaskan salmon. Um, and then black bean burgers a lot. Um, I, I do sometimes do those, you know, beyond meat type of burgers, but I'm skeptical to be honest, cause they're made in a factory and God knows really what we're going to find out later those have. So <laughs> my, my school is out on that one still, but it tastes good. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually with you of all the alternative meat products. I kind of say, if you're going to do it, do the real thing in moderation and then just stick with kind of eating your healthy salads and, you know, uh, protein that way. Yes, exactly. And, in, and by the way, just for your listeners um, and your patients who are like, well, I just can't give up the meat yet. If you, like you said, if you can do it in moderation, reduce the amount, reduce the portion size. We don't need to have a 12 ounce steak. Honestly, a three ounce portion is more than enough. And then make sure it's grass fed and for poultry pasture raised and organic. I I think that's all spot on because I really, I think that telling people who are used to uh, eating meat, it's hard to just go cold turkey and it's hard to cut it out. And so I think in moderation, no more than once per week, you know, grass fed, organic, that really helps. To go back to the smoothies, a couple of things. What greens powder do you use and where could people find kind of that recipe that you talked about? So the recipe for my smoothie is in my book, Your Healthiest Healthy, but also it's um, going to be posted on my Instagram. It's not already there because I'm not sure when people are listening, but it's not there right this day on this very day we're taping, but it's going to be there this week. So um, so it's in my 
So the recipe for my smoothie, my, I like to call it my kitchen sink smoothie, is uh, in, posted in my Instagram account, but also in the book, Your Healthiest Healthy, along with a great selection of other things like my favorite black bean burger recipe, um, a, a spinach banana, I call it the green monster muffins that my kids love. They were slightly afraid of until I called them green mu- monster muffins. Actually, I think in the book I called them Shrek muffins. And then they were skeptical, but tried them and now they... It's like one of their favorites. Um, and so, and actually you can see me preparing it. My website, which is just samantha-harris.com. Um, I prepared those green muffins uh, on the show Home and Family. So you can see how that looks if you need a tutorial. Oh, what what, what are the greens powders that we said? So there, I've tried a lot of different brands and thankfully there are some really terrific brands out there. Um, I le- personally like Garden of Life. Um, I like it because it's, um, not just the greens powder, but also their protein powder that I use, which is the, the raw, um, raw organic plant-based vanilla protein powder, um, and the greens powder and their wheat grass powder. I like that they're always organic. Um, the way that they are harvested, uh, their process is, is very clean. And I like the concoction of greens that are contained within it. Um, and so I just use a scoop of that. Now, if you're making a smaller smoothie, definitely don't use a full scoop because it will, until you're used to it, because it definitely has a little bit more of a taste. But if I have a 40 ounce smoothie that I make every day and it takes me through the morning and into the early afternoon sometimes that to the point that I might not even eat lunch until halfway through the afternoon. Um, and because of the switch to filling my plate half full of veggies at every meal, I have and I'm, I've always been known as the Energizer Bunny. I have more energy than I've ever had. And it's great. That's amazing. I want to end with if you could give the listeners kind of three tips that are going to take them through. And not just necessarily for breast cancer survivors, but for anyone who's looking to kind of optimize their life and make it a little bit healthier. What would those three things be? First switch as much as you can to a plant-based whole foods diet. And that can just start with adding more veggies to each meal. Second would be to change up your foundation and begin your road to cleaner beauty. And the third would be to rid toxic relationships from your life and to learn sort of how to identify those relationships and extricate them in a way to minimize the shrapnel that may fly. Uh, I take you through it step by step in the book as well. But those relationships that are detrimental to your well-being need to be assessed and, and extricated. Thank you so much. This was really helpful. And I know everyone is going to love the tips and the advice and the information that you shared. Thank you so much. Well, your patients are very lucky to have you. Your listeners are incredibly lucky because they get to hear so many different stories that you're sharing with them. And I am honored to have been on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Samantha. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you continue to tune in every week as I share the stories of these incredible women who have been affected by cancer in some way. For more cancer news as well as podcast news and updates, please follow me on Twitter at Dr. Doplinsky and on Instagram at Dr. Doplinsky as well. You can find Samantha on her website at www.samantha-harris.com, on Twitter at Samantha Harris, or on Instagram at at Samantha Harris TV. 
If you are loving the show, and I hope you are, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way for me to grow the show and bring it to more listeners, which is really my goal. I hope you guys have a great weekend and I will see you all next week.